All right. Uh, you've got an introduction paper right there in front of you, and it's got the outline on it. On the back, it's got some introduction uh, information. Most of the introduction is not about Zephaniah, the person, uh, but it's about King Josiah. And most of you are probably familiar with the name Josiah. If you study your Bible, King Josiah uh, was the last godly king that the nation of Judah had, and uh, he did his best to institute a bunch of reforms into the kingdom, try to clean it up and uh, do the right thing. He had a good heart, but we're going to see what happened as a result of all that uh, tonight. So beginning there uh, with our introduction material, it says, Zephaniah prophesied during the days of Josiah, the last godly king of Judah. We must remember that throughout Josiah's reign, the Assyrians still brooded over the distant horizon, and for the first third of that reign, the dangerous Ashurbanipal continued to hold court at Nineveh. If you were here last week, you remember us talking about Ashurbanipal. He was sort of the last prominent king of the Assyrian Empire. Nahum has already prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, but of course it has not taken place yet. Uh, it, that's why it was prophecy. It's still on the horizon, and so when Zephaniah prophesied, uh, the Assyrians are very much still in power. It says the lion was getting old, but he could still growl. Speaking of the Assyrians, the Medes and Persians were watching, but were not yet ready to face the lion in his den. Besides, they still did not trust each other. It was not until near the end of Josiah's reign that they came to terms and turned on the tyrant on the Tigris together. Which Diane here's yet. Copy of a worksheet. The victorious Syaxeres and Nabopolassar, Syaxeres was the uh, leader of the Medes and Persians, Nabopolassar was the uh, emperor of the Babylonian Empire at that time. Uh, the victorious Syaxeres and Nabopolassar, their Babylonian ally, divided the spoils of the Assyrian Empire, and one small segment of the Babylonian share was Judah. Thenceforth, Babylonian power and influence had to be reckoned with in Judah, even though Babylon was not yet sure enough of itself to be a threat. Indeed, when Pharaoh made a bid to seize Babylon's share of the spoils, Josiah mobilized his forces against Egypt. Josiah, still a comparatively young man, was slain by the Egyptians at Megiddo. Some state of the country when Josiah came to the throne can be gathered from 2 Kings 23. Every form of religious wickedness and every kind of moral perversion were practiced. Josiah even had to break down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord. There were shrines to the sun, moon, and stars. Men swore by the queen of heaven and sacrificed their children to Moloch. Josiah longed to reform the nation, and his reforms, though earnest and well-intentioned, like those of Hezekiah touched only the surface of Judah's wickedness. The preaching of Zephaniah may have helped spark the revival, but he himself was not interested in it. He was of royal blood, and the Reform Party was headed by the king. So we might have expected him to endorse the revival, to call for it, and urge it on when it came. But Zephaniah ignored the reforms, for his mission was not to reform the nation. Zephaniah stood up to preach in Jerusalem at a critical time. 
Judah was cynically ignoring the doom of the northern tribes who had long since vanished. The sins of Manasseh had pushed Judah over the hidden boundary between God's mercy and his wrath. So her doom was now fixed. Zephaniah's mission, therefore, was not to the whole nation, but to the remnant that would flee from the wrath to come. The mantle of Isaiah, Amos, Joel, and Hosea had fallen on Zephaniah. Judgment and the day of the Lord. So here again we have a minor prophet whose theme is the day of the Lord. When we speak about the day of the Lord, we understand that that has a very practical definition, and then it has a prophetic definition. The practical definition is it's any day of judgment in which the Lord's inflicting judgment on a group of people. And uh, just as in Joel's time, he saw an immediate day of the Lord with the plague of locusts, and then he saw an imminent day of the Lord with the Assyrians coming in, there is also the day of the Lord in the prophetic sense, which is speaking of the time when Christ comes in power and in glory and judges the nations of this world. And so he spoke of an, uh, an, an absolute day of the Lord. That's not the word I was looking for, uh, but it'll work. Amen. An ultimate day of the Lord is the word I was looking for. And in the same way, Zephaniah sort of has that scope. Now, most people never read the book of Zephaniah. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, unless it's just on your, your schedule and reading through the Bible and you trudge through the, the three small chapters, you know, in one day, most people never grasp the import of what's being dealt with. I think one of the reasons is probably because we're Gentiles. We're Gentiles that don't live immediately around Israel. And as such, we don't feel like it applies to us. But the themes in the book of Zephaniah are just as applicable to us as they are to any other person, except I'm sure they are more so to a Jew or to one of the Gentile nations immediately around them. But we always learn something of the, na of the nature of God. Every page of your Bible teaches you something about the nature and person of God and teaches you something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can gain some very valuable truths from this little book of Zephaniah. So as with the others, we've given you a simple outline and an elaborated outline. As we've said every single week, the simple outline is what we're going to kind of follow because of its brevity, and the elaborated outline is much better, much more uh, descriptive and distinct, but we don't have time to follow. Follow all of that. I want us to notice the first verse of uh, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now there's something unusual about that first verse. It goes back four generations in his genealogy. This is unusual. In fact, you don't see this with any of the other minor prophets. And the reason is found in that last person that's mentioned in his lineage, which is Hezekiah. It's another way of saying Hezekiah. Uh, Zephaniah was a great-grandson of the king of Judah, Hezekiah. We don't really read anything about his lineage beyond the book of Zephaniah. No doubt the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, who was so wicked, would have snuffed out any other competitors to the throne. But we have a little bit of a hint, I think, in Zephaniah's name. His name actually means Jehovah has hidden. And it could be that he was named that by his mother and by his father because they believed and knew that God was capable of hiding him uh, from the certain death that would surely fall upon him if he was to be found out. But isn't there a more beautiful truth there? And that is this, that God's sovereign hand was there four generations back. Uh, God certainly knows what he's doing. The judge of all the earth does, does right, amen, and he doeth all things well. 
And so we understand that Zephaniah has royal blood in him. In fact, the title of him uh, in our notes is the royal prophet. Now, you say, well, why is that significant? It's significant because of the very things we read in the introduction. You would think that Zephaniah would throw the full weight of his prophetic office behind his cousin Josiah in reforming the kingdom of Judah. You would think he'd do everything he could. He, he's unusual. He's different from the other minor prophets. I mean, he's, he's not a country bumpkin, you know, so to speak. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not like Amos. He, he's not a, 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 a gatherer of figs in, in, uh, you know, Tekoa. He, he's a royal person. He, he has grown up, maybe not in in the palace, but certainly around that group of people, much like Isaiah was. But he doesn't say anything about those reforms. In fact, there's not one glowing statement that he makes anywhere, not positive, uh, not positive point even one about the reforms that Josiah was introducing. Now, you say, what do we learn about God concerning that? Well, we learn two things. One thing we learn is that God knows everything. And God knew and understood that though Josiah's heart was right, uh, the heart of the people that he was trying to reform was not right. You can't legislate revival. It doesn't take place. Uh, you know, we, we, we're so concerned with trying to pass the right laws, and I'm not saying there's not some, some validity to that. We need to try to make our country as godly as possible. But understand that the problem with our country is a sin problem. It can only be dealt with by people being born again and by Christians surrendering their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and living for the Lord. That's the only answer. You've heard it this way a hundred times that it won't be fixed from the White House. It's got to be fixed from the church house. And so we understand that God sees and knows everything that is taking place. Then we understand this about the nature of God, that there is a breaking point to his mercy and his compassion. Now, again, we're not talking, for the most part, about the individual soul salvation of lost sinners. I'm glad God is long-suffering. And truthfully, if, if God, if His mercy was tempered by our wickedness concerning salvation, there wouldn't be a one of us ever be saved. But we're talking about people that knew the Lord. And they had came to a place in their lives, or let's put it this way, a nation that knew the Lord. They crossed God's hidden boundary, so to speak, between His mercy and His wrath, and there was no turning back. They had to be judged. And so there's three basic messages, three basic people or topics that are addressed in the book of Zephaniah. And loosely they follow this. The first chapter deals with the day of the Lord and the Jews. The second chapter, almost entirely, deals with the day of the Lord and the Gentiles. In other words, what, what is God going to do to the Gentile nations when Christ returns? And then finally, chapter 3 deals with the day of the Lord and the kingdom. God bringing to pass, bringing to fruition all all of these promises that he's made concerning Israel. So let's begin in verse number 2, and we'll just take it verse by verse. I think we'll have enough time to do that tonight. begins in verse 2 by saying this, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from off the land, saith the the Lord. We have three great pictures here. Three, three pictures of, of just huge magnitude concerning God's judgment. Now here's something you need to keep in mind. There are two basic events in, in the scope of Zephaniah's prophetic sight. One is the immediate destruction of the land of Judah by the Babylonians. 
And you say, well, what do you mean? When did that happen? Well, you know the stories. You know the story in the book of Daniel. You know how they were carried away. Uh, you know about their time in exile. That event is immediately within Zephaniah's prophetic vision. But then, as is so often the case with the minor prophets, he can be in one moment talking about something that is very, very near, and then in the next moment he's seeing something that is happening at the end of the times of the Gentiles, which is the day when Christ will return in power and in glory. So there's two days of the Lord, so to speak, that, that are going to be seen. There's the immediate day of the Lord, the Babylonian invasion, when they're going to invade the land of Judah and destroy the temple and uh, you know burn Solomon's temple to the ground and carry away uh, the Jews, including Danrak and Hannah, or Danrak, listen to me, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the other Jews, uh, the choice of the nation. And then there's the day when Christ is going to return in power and in glory and judge Israel and judge the other nations. And so the first picture that we see is the picture of a great sweeping flood. Now, I know we don't see the word flood there, but that word consume has the idea of just sweeping everything away. And I think the language here probably harkens back to what took place when God judged the earth with a flood once before, where it says, I will consume man and beast, the fowls of the heaven, the fishes of the sea, and he says this, the stumbling blocks, meaning the idols of the wicked, and I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. Now, he's not saying God's going to judge things with a flood, but he's saying that when the judgment comes, it's going to be like a sweeping flood across the land. Certainly that was the case when the Babylonians finally destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians did what several other leaders and emperors through time had done. You know, they came in and they were not as bloodthirsty as the Assyrians were. And they came in and at first they just tried to, to make the land tributary to themselves. And they tried to make them pay taxes. They tried to sort of put them in chains, so to speak, economically and, and uh, socially. Uh, but then Zedekiah, the wicked king of Judah, you'll remember him from the book of Jeremiah. You remember Jeremiah was telling him, you might as well accept the judgment of the Lord. The Babylonians are going to overrun you. And they took him and threw him in a pit. You remember that? And the, the Ethiopian got the sackcloth and, and uh, or cast cloths is what it's called, the old rags, and, and pulled the prophet up out of there. They were angry because Jeremiah was prophesying the Babylonians were going to defeat them. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that like public morale 101 uh, will tell you that it's not a good idea to tell your people to lay down because the enemy's going to win. And so they, they thought, well, we can't have Jeremiah. That's treason. We can't have him saying that. So Zedekiah tried to revolt against the Babylonians. When he did that, it brought the full anger and fury of Nebuchadnezzar down upon that kingdom, and they burnt the place to the ground. Such is the vision, such is the scene that Zephaniah is seeing. The Lord says this, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of and he names several things or several sins that he points out that he's judging them in response to. And you can see it there in your uh, outline, uh, the elaborated outline, point letter one, uh, let's see, Roman numeral one, letter B, point two, so on and so forth, in the Lord's discrimination. The first is Baal worship. Look what he says. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And he's speaking of immorality. 
Baal worship was intertwined with sexual lewdness. The same way that uh, the Hindu temples in, in India have temple prostitutes and, and their acts of worship involve uh, lying down with those prostitutes. Baal worship was the same way. The Lord says, because of this, I'm going to cut this off from your land. I'm going to cure you of Baal worship. The next thing that he mentions is the worshiping of the host of heaven. Look what it says in verse number 5. And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. He's speaking of astrology. By the way, in verse number 4, that phrase, Kimrams, uh, deals with the priests. They had followed the idolatry of the priests. I'm not going to dwell on it, but I'm sure you probably wondered what Kimrams were. Uh, Verse number five deals with astrology in the first part. Let me tell you something. We live in a day of new astrology. You say, what do you mean? I don't, I, I don't necessarily mean zodiacs and things like that. Now, I believe there's a lot of wickedness with, with astrology and, and zodiacs and things like that. There's a lot of people live their life by that. They ought to be living it by the word of God. And I, I think certain, certainly that, uh, you know, that, that is a, a worthy admonition to make. But the astrology that we see in the day, what were they doing? They were worshiping the creature more than the creator. The flat house tops there in that part of the world were very conducive to that. Before they'd go to bed, they'd go up on top of the housetop and they would worship the hosts of heaven, the stars and the moon in the morning. They'd worship the sun. What we have today is a different kind of astrology, a different kind of, uh, you know, secular humanism that exists in the day that we live in uh, through evolution, through worship of the planet. We live in a day of worship of the planet. Let me tell you something. When they legislate the kind of car you can drive based on whether it's going to upset some turtle in Venezuela, something's wrong. Amen? I mean, that's worshiping the creature more than the creator. This earth is here for the enjoyment of man. I believe we ought to be fit stewards. I don't believe we ought to to treat lightly our responsibility. Uh, When God put man in the garden, he put him there to work it, to tend it, to keep it. I don't believe he he put him there to trash it. But there's a problem when we've grown to the place where we're worshiping most of those people. Let me tell you something. Boy, I I, I won't even come to preach tonight. Let let me tell you this. There's something wrong. There's something wrong when you'll weep over over animals being put to death, but you won't weep over a child being put to death. That's a Something's twisted in our society. And so we live in a day that's very, very similar to that. Look at the end of verse number 5. Insincerity. Look what it says. And them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. And you say, who's Malcolm? Well, that's another name for Moloch. Those that swear by the Lord and by Malcolm. He's dealing with hypocrisy. Those that say they're worshiping the Lord, but they're also worshiping something else. Boy, that, hit, that hits us right in our Baptist hearts, doesn't it? Because we, we know the truth, and, I, and I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to say it's only going to be Baptists in heaven. I think there's going to be a lot of Baptists we thought would be there that won't be, amen? And, and maybe maybe a, a lot from some other denominations that we would have swore would have never got in that do. But I will say this, you know, as Bible believers and as Biblicists, we know the truth. And there's a great amount of responsibility that comes with knowing the truth. And we better be very careful, because sometimes we can have all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted, but our heart is as wicked as it can come. Just because everything's right on the outside doesn't mean it's right on the inside. The Pharisees were whited sepulchers. They were beautiful and garnished on the outside, but within were dead men's bones. So he's dealing with that in the nation of Israel. And then not only insincerity, but cruelty. In sacrificing the Moloch, that dealt actually, and, and again, I'm not going to hammer on abortion, uh, but that dealt with, with uh, making your children pass through the fire. 
And this wasn't the first time that the children of Israel had been ensnared by this. Uh, there had been times before in their past that they had made their children pass through the fire. And uh, that's another way of saying casting them in and giving a human sacrifice. And certainly I believe America is guilty of that today. About 43 million children have been aborted since the institution of Roe v. Wade. Just those that are on the record. That's not counting those in, in back alleys and, and in, in uh, less than reputable hospital rooms and, and uh, hospital offices. I mean, that, that's, that is an awful, awful thing. America's got a lot of blood on her hands, a lot of things that she's going to have to answer for. The Lord was willing to destroy the apple of his eye over that, and we think we're going to escape God's judgment. I think we better think again. Uh, look at verse number 6, apostasy. Them that are turned back from the Lord. Those that had been turned towards him, but now they have turned their back on the Lord. They have gone back on God. And then just flat out infidelity. Those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. And boy, that's a sin that America is guilty of. Giving no thought, no concern to the Lord. And I'll tell you this, a lot of churches are guilty of that. There's a lot of churches that what they do, that the Lord's will has no bearing on what they do. There's a lot of churches that never inquire of the Lord what he'd have them to do. And uh, I'll tell you, formalism can kill a church just as quickly as modernism can. I don't believe the Lord's the author of confusion. I don't believe he's the author of chaos. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a little bit of order and a little bit of structure. But we better be careful that we don't fall into a trap of, of getting into a slump and getting into to a ditch and getting into a rut. My old preacher used to say a rut isn't nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. There's a lot of danger there. And certainly a lot of churches have died on account of that. So he goes down through and begins to deal with all of these sins. He says, I'm going to wash all of these sins away. So the first picture is a great flood. The second is a great sacrifice. Boy, they've been sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing. The Lord says, I've got a sacrifice I'm going to give. Verse 7, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. I think you sort of have a shadow, an echo of prophecy there. And what I mean is this. I believe there's a very distinct, literal understanding of that for the day of Zephaniah. But do you remember in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a day when there's going to be silence in heaven? And uh, the old preachers used to always say, it's how you know there ain't going to be no women there. You know, you've heard them. That's awful. I wouldn't make a joke like that. I am more sensitive than that. I would not make a joke like that. I might laugh at a joke like that, but I would not make a joke like that. The old preachers used to say things like that, you know. But there's going to be a time when there'll be a silence in heaven. I think that sort of is an echo or a shadow of things to come. It says, And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish who? The princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. What's unusual? Two things are unusual about that verse. One, he doesn't say the king. Well, why? Because Josiah was doing his best. It was real in Josiah's heart, but it wasn't necessarily real in everyone else's heart. That ought to warn us to this truth. Just because folks will go with us, that don't mean that they're going the same direction as us. Just because folks will go with us, that don't mean they're going the same direction as us. Josiah had people that were going along in the reforms, but their heart was not where it needed to be like Josiah's was. And the second thing that's interesting, it says, such as are clothed with strange apparel. Now, I, there, you know, sometimes he might be talking about me. <laughs> I don't know. It's not, he's not saying it's wrong that they're in strange apparel. What he's saying is that the influences of Gentile nations had infected the nation of Judah. 
Verse number 9 says, In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with deceit and uh, with violence and deceit. Now, this sacrifice, there are sort of about four groups of people that the Lord is saying he's going to sacrifice. The first is the royal rebels in verse number 8. And you see this down in that elaborated outline. The royal rebels, those that weren't right, that were in positions of authority and power. The second are the sin seekers. The picture that's given in verse number 9, and, and I had to really do some studies. I didn't know what that meant, that leap on the threshold. It's speaking about those that when they get up in the morning, they literally leap out the door to go and do violence. And then when they return into their master's house, they're bringing the things that they've stolen, the things that they uh, have robbed from people, and filling their master's house with violence and deceit. So the idea is those that go about seeking to do wrong and seeking to sin. There is a difference. I understand all sin is sin, but there is a difference between those that fall into sin and those that jump into sin. And I've known some that have fallen into sin. We all fall into sin at times. But then there are some that are actively seeking to jump into sin. And I believe God's going to judge them. Verse number 10 deals with, verse 10 and 11, the money makers, those that had profited uh from others around them. And notice this, this interesting language. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, ye inhabitants of Maktesh. Now, what does all that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. The fish gate was on the northern wall of the city and at the northeastern side. That was probably where merchants brought in fish from, from Joppa and Tyre and Sidon and, and places like that up uh, north of the country. And what it's saying is this, from that place the great howl and the great cry is going to be heard. Wouldn't you believe it? This is, this is why your King James Bible is written on purpose. That's the very gate that Nebuchadnezzar entered the city through. The second that's spoken of means the second part or the new part of the city that was built to the north. It was there that most of the wealthy people lived. And surely they thought living in that nice area, that nice part of town, they'd be safe. And that's why people move to a nice part of town. You know, I mean, you know, people don't move out to, you know, like West Knoxville and Farragut and stuff, you know, just because they like to be far away. They move out to nice areas to get away from the crime and from the problems that the city has. And in that same way, there's this whole new quarter of the city uh, that people are living in. And Zephaniah says that's going to be the next place. It's going to come through the fish gate, through into the second area. And then he says, and a great crashing from the hills. What are the hills? The hills was the old part of the city. Now, Jerusalem was built on a hill, Zion's Hill, uh, Mount Moriah. And maybe those that lived in the old part of the city thought that by being in the heart of the city, they'd be safe from anyone advancing. Uh, it'd take time to get to them. But Zephaniah says, when I heard them, I heard the cry from the fish gate. I heard the howling from the new part of town and a great crashing even in the old part of town. He says, how ye inhabitants of Maktesh. That word Maktesh literally means mortar. But most commentators believe that that was the name for the merchant's district. And certainly that would make sense with the next statement. It says, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. In other words, their economic stability 
would be shaken and ruined. God would judge the money makers. And then verse number 12, there's another interesting phrase that's used here. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves. Now what does that mean? Well, it harkens back to the old process of, of winemaking. Now I don't mean fermented wine, but winemaking. Uh, they would allow the leaves to rise up in the wine and then they would leave the wine upon those leaves or, or soaking in those leaves just long enough for it to get its color and its body. But then as soon as it was ready, they would take it off because if it didn't, it would get syrupy and thick and it wouldn't be fit to drink. And so the picture is of people that have rested on their leaves, that have rested. Uh, and Well, let's read on. I think you'll understand with the next phrase. That say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil that believe that God has no interest in mankind, so why live diligently, why seek the Lord, why do right? And they've grown lazy and they've grown complacent. The leisure lovers. He says this, Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. So the Lord says, This is my sacrifice, these four groups of people. This is my judgment. What's a sacrifice? The purpose of a sacrifice is to try to make things right. Isn't it? The Old Testament, they bring a sacrifice to try to make things right between themselves and God. Well, if God's bringing a sacrifice, what's he doing? He's trying to make things right between him and man. Certainly on the cross of Calvary, the greatest sacrifice ever given was for the purpose of reconciling God and man. And when he's giving this sacrifice, he's saying, I'm setting things right with Jerusalem and with Judah. I'm punishing them because of their iniquity. So look at the next few verses. It begins to describe the day of the Lord. He's described what he's going to do, but now Zephaniah is seeing a vision of what the day of the Lord's going to be like. And again, this applies to Babylon, and it applies to the coming day of judgment uh, when the Lord returns. Notice first off the, the nearness of the day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. That was true in Zephaniah's day. The day of the Lord was very near. Uh, Babylon would very soon overrun Judah. In fact, as you look, uh, he, he's the last one, I believe. I may be mistaken, but I believe that Zephaniah, uh, well, Habakkuk would be the other one. Zephaniah and Habakkuk are the last prophets before the exile. So the day of the Lord is very near in his time. But what about us today? I believe the day of the Lord is still very near. I believe the Lord is returning to rapture his bride out. And seven years later, I believe that the day of the Lord is coming. I believe it's upon us even now. Then you have a description. Uh, we see the nearness of the day of the Lord, but you see the nature of it. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet, meaning a day of battle, and alarm against the thin cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, meaning they'll stumble about, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell 
in the land. That is certainly a very uh, adept picture of the day when the Lord is returning. And He is going to do that uh, when He returns. He's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist. He's going to lay waste all of the Gentile nations that are gathered there against Him. Not to say that there won't be Gentile nations in the world, but the armies that are gathered there, He's going to destroy them and lay waste to them. I'd do that. I was getting dried out. Amen. That's pretty bad when you preach and drive yourself out. All right, look at chapter number two. You have one more plea to the people of Judah concerning uh, the day of the Lord. And this is very distinct and specific language. It says this, Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Now, some commentators will tell you that that phrase, not desired, has the idea of, of not punished or not chastened. I believe in the King James Bible. Uh, I see no reason to read anything else into that. They certainly are a nation not desired. In that time, they were a nation not desired. In this day, they are a nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So this is a message in that day to them before the Babylonian invasion. It's a day, a message today for the Jews even before the rapture, but certainly un, uh, unregenerate Jews during the tribulation period to do what? Verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, and what's the promise? Does the Lord say, and I'll turn my wrath? Does the Lord say, and I won't destroy, uh, though, you know, all this wickedness in the land? Does the Lord say, I, I will repent of all that I fought against you? No. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. I had this discussion the other day with someone. There's going to be people who live through the tribulation period. Not everybody's going to die. It's not like, you know, the Lord's going to come back and everybody on the entire earth and planet's going to die. There's going to be people live through the tribulation period. There's going to be unsaved people live through the tribulation period. Now, the Jews will turn in one day in righteousness to the Lord, and he's speaking to the remnant of the Jews here. Uh, but there's going to be people who live through the tribulation period. When the millennial kingdom is set up, we're not all going to be standing around in white robes with, with harps singing. All, I mean, it's a functioning society and a functioning world. And we know that there's unsaved people during that time because at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, Satan is loosed at, to deceive the four corners of the earth. Now, he couldn't do that to saved people, but he does it to unsaved people. Going to be people born during the tribulation period and die, or not tribulation, the millennial kingdom. Going to be people born and people die during the millennial kingdom. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, a child shall die at 100 years old. In other words, if a person was to die at 100 years old during the millennial kingdom, uh, they'd be considered a child. They'd be considered young to be dying at that age. And so the Lord gives this message to the remnant. He says, in your hearts and with full faith, turn unto me, and I'll preserve you during that time. Certainly the Bible does teach us there will be a remnant that, that survived through the tribulation uh, period of the Jewish people. Now, the message turns and it changes things. Everything we've read here before has dealt with the, the day of the Lord and, and the Jews, but now we deal with the day of the Lord and the Gentiles. And I'm probably not going to say a whole lot about this, uh, but I do want to read through it. And there are several people that are mentioned, several nations, but it takes these by directions. And you see it there on the second column near the top of your notes there. Uh, these are those that had 
conquered Judah, those that had been the enemies of Judah. And he starts with Philistia, the Philistines. And he says this in verse 4, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Those are all Philistine cities. Woe unto the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Carathites. Those are those that dwelt in the southern portion of Philistia. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. Now, there is an immediate fulfillment of that that already took place, but then there's a prophetic fulfillment. There are still people that inhabited those areas, and uh, people that are that are enemies to, to Israel that, that still inhabit uh, those areas. The immediate fulfillment was the Lord did destroy all those. You can't go to any of those places. I mean, there's the Gaza Strip there, but it's not Gaza, the Philistine city. You can't go to Ashkelon, and it's inhabited and populated with Philistines, or Ashdod and Ekron. But evidently, there's a future fulfillment, because still... The Israelites don't dwell there peacefully. But it says in verse number 6, And the sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. So here again, there's an immediate understanding, but then it looks further into the future uh, to the millennial kingdom. Verse number 8, he deals with the Moabites and the Ammonites uh, to the east. He says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. It says, in other words, there's not going to be anything there except briar bushes and salt pits. Uh, the land will be left desolate. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Again, there was an immediate fulfillment of that. Uh, that area today is not inhabited by those those same people. I mean, I'm sure you could trace the DNA back far enough, you'd find traces of it, but those nations have been destroyed. But then there's a future fulfillment of it, that whole eastern area. You know, the West Bank is what they're always fighting about, the West Bank of the Jordan River. This would be on the East Bank. That's that's Palestinian land, so to speak, today. Uh, so the Lord is going to give them back that land. They're going to possess it. Verse number 12 says, Ye Ethiopians also... Ye shall be slain by my sword. Again, there was an immediate and there's still a future fulfillment. And then verse 13, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. That's what the whole book of Nahum was about last week, was how he would destroy Assyria. And certainly uh, he has done that. Nineveh up until the 1840s couldn't even be found. The site of Nineveh could not be found. I think 1842 uh, was when it was finally discovered. So We've seen for the west, Philistia, to the east, Moab and Ammon, to the south, the Ethiopians, and to the north, Assyria. But it doesn't stop there. 
Look at the rest of this. Uh, it says the rest of the end of the chapter deals with why he destroyed the Assyrians. You can read that in your own time. talks about their carelessness and how they thought there was none beside them. But look at chapter number 3. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. Now, they've already been the nation not desired. Who is the oppressing city? Well, she obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Now the Lord's talking about Jerusalem. He's pronounced judgment on all these Gentile lands, but now he's pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. And he describes why he's doing that. He gives its pollutions uh, in uh, verse one through or, uh, verse number one through four. He describes first off the people in the first two verses uh, that they've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. They've not received that which the Lord has spoken to them. Verse number three deals with her princes. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw uh, not the bones till tomorrow. Uh, verse number. Four, the first part deals with her prophets. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. And in the end of it deals with her priests. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the lost. The Lord pronounces all these judgments, all these uh, accusations, all these charges against Jerusalem. says uh, that your, your people, your princes, your prophets, your priests, you're wicked to the core. Now remember, this is at a time when religious reform is taking place. That should tell you something. This is at a time when to the outside observer, everything seems to be getting better. Make no mistake, the God of heaven is the searcher and seeker of men's hearts. We may look fine on the outside, but if there's something wrong on the inside, God knows about it. He'll do for us like he said he would do for Israel. He'll seek us out with candles. You say, why would you do that? Well, the candles are to look in the crevices. In the places where you can't get a torch, but a candle can be put there. We'll seek out the deep and dark places of our lives. This is very interesting language, verse 5. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I don't know about you. I may have to preach on that sometime. Because you know what my mind thinks of immediately? Paul said, what, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. What was he talking about when he said the Lord is in the midst thereof? You see, the Lord had promised when they built the temple and uh, actually when they built the tabernacle and the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, he said, there will I meet with thee. And he consecrated it. The Shekinah glory of God sat down on the tabernacle so that they couldn't even enter into it. And then when Solomon built his temple, the same thing happened again. It says that the, the, the priests could not even minister for the glory of the Lord that was filling the temple. And when God would meet with man, his presence would sit down upon that mercy seat. The Lord says, I'm in the midst of thee. But he doesn't just say the Lord is. He says, the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. In other words, he won't abide sin. And he said over and over again, what, his judgment? He, every morning doth he bring his judgment to light, he faileth not. In other words, he's not failed to warn us. He brings his judgment to light every morning. What is that judgment? He'll either have to destroy the sin or the sinner, one of the two. I'm talking about saved people now. 
He'll either have to destroy the sin or the sinner. He'll either get the sin out of our lives or get the life out of us. One of the two. And how have we responded? The unjust knoweth no shame. I mean, could you imagine? Sin in their hearts approaching to sacrifice to the Lord. Sin in their hearts. The priests, sin in their hearts going about the daily business of the temple. Oh, but now wait a minute. What about you and I? Sin in our hearts when we walk through the doors of our church house. Sin in our hearts when we stand up and sing the songs of Zion. How many of us are made hypocrites when we sing trust and obey? How many of us are hypocrites when we sing have thine own way, Lord? How many of us are hypocrites when we say that we're leaning unto the Lord and we're trusting Him and we're living for Him? How big hypocrites do we have to be? The all man, the Lord help me to say this all the right way. The preacher gets up and preach and we have nerve enough to say amen when we ought to be saying oh me. Knoweth no shame. Sit there and shout her out when we got sin in our lives. Boy, that's a problem there. And then nerve enough when the altar call comes to know God's dealt with us and to sit unmoved in our pew. Knoweth no shame. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction. Verse number six, I, I, I missed this. He says this, I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. The Lord says, you've seen me judge other nations. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwellings should not be cut off, howsoever I punished them. In other words, the Lord says, I've judged other nations just so that you can, can see that I judge sin. And I thought surely you'd turn to me. I was told the story, uh, Brother Carrie, our, our youth pastor, was telling about a buddy of his that was walking through Walmart one day and had his little boy with him. And... uh there was somebody, uh, a parent had a child there, and, and that child was just going crazy. You know how they do. I mean, they get in Walmart or something about the air. They, they, they pump stuff in through the AC unit. I mean, kids just go crazy getting to Walmart. That child just going wild and going wild and going wild. And that fellow looked at him and, and said, you know what will fix that, don't you? And he said, no, what will fix it? If you whip him, that, that fix it. That fellow just looked at him. Couldn't believe he said that. He said, what, you need know how? He grabbed his own boy and whipped him just to show him how to whip somebody. That's a daddy right there. The Lord says, I've whipped other nations just to show you I'd whip you. You've seen me destroy nations. And I did this so that their dwellings should not be cut off so I wouldn't have to judge you. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. The Lord says, okay, just wait. Just wait. If you won't listen, then just wait. Because one of these days I'll rise up to the prey. I'll rise up these nations that have made themselves a prey for me by their wickedness and their sin. He says, I'll gather all the kingdoms together so that I can judge them and judge you at once. And so we see a glimpse of a future coming judgment. 
and we see a few a glimpse of a future coming kingdom. Verse number 9 says this, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. The Lord says, I'm just going to sit on my throne in Jerusalem and take all the other gods away. Give them a pure language, that they'll call upon me and come to me. This is a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. Christ is upon his throne. In verse 8, he judged all the kingdoms and all the nations, and now he sits upon his throne so that the nations can come to him in righteousness. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughters of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In other words, they're going to contribute to all these other nations, and, and the Jews, the daughters of my dispersed, are going to come home and bring all of these things uh, for mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. He's speaking of the day when the world's going to be set right because he sits on his throne. The day when the nations have been judged, the kingdoms have been judged, he's visibly, physically, bodily seated upon his throne, and he says, I'm going to cleanse the nation of Israel. You'll no more be ashamed because of your sin, because of your haughtiness, because uh, because of my holy mountain, because I'm the true God. He says, I will also leave in the midst of the and afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. That's the remnant. He's saying, you're going to have a special place in my kingdom, those that have faithfully trusted me, even through the tribulation period. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So we see here in these last passages that are set before us, the day of the Lord and the kingdom in chapter 3 speaks of Jerusalem and God's jealous anger in the first eight verses. Then the Gentiles and how he's going to deal with them. And now he's dealing with the remnants. And the first thing he says in the verses we've just read is, I'm going to remove sinners from the midst of Israel. They're going to turn to me with one heart. Then in verse 14 through 17, we have the sound of that, the rejoicing as a result of that. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What a, what a picture of Jerusalem in that day. The Lord in the midst, rejoicing, singing over them. No more fear. They're not slack anymore. They're not backsliding anymore. They're living right. They're doing right because the Lord's in the midst of them. And then finally you see in closing the land restored. He says, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden, those that it was a burden to come and worship. He says, I'm going to gather those. Behold, at that time I will uh, undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. Boy, the Jews have been put to shame in every land. 
and they've halted, and they've been weak, and they've been oppressed, and the Lord says, I'm going to gather them. It's been a reproach and a burden to serve me, but it won't be in that day. I'm going to gather me to, them to me, and, and I'm going to give them fame and praise in all of the lands. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. We live in a day when the Jew is cursed and spit upon. There's coming a day he's going to be the fame and praise of this world. He's going to be, I mean, there'll come a day when the Jew will be spoken of, not with derision and hate and bigotry, but will be spoken of with blessing and praise. Man, what a day that's going to be. Don't that get you excited for the Lord to come back? I mean, let me tell you something. It gets me excited to think about these things. Amen. 